This week on the show, we have Build Your FreeBSD Developer Workstation article from Tom for you. Logging is important, as we will discover how BSD authentication works in the OpenBSD way. PFSense turns 15 years old. OpenSense Business Edition 21.10 has been released. Getting started with pot, not that pot, and others in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 427, Logging is Important, recorded on the 20th of October, 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoid. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome to a fresh episode that people keep waiting every week for, that it's coming out, and here it is. Uh, before we start, we have a Patreon. If you haven't seen it yet, it's patreon.com slash bsdnow, where you can put a dollar or so in there, like a tip jar, if you want to support the show or like what we're doing. And that's your way of saying thank you or giving us a nice little tip on the shoulder. Okay, headlines this week start with build your FreeBSD developer workstation setup or building even. Uh, a certain Tom Jones has written this, so he asked me to read this part. So I'll be happy to do this. And the article is definitely interesting for people who want to get into FreeBSD development or development as a whole. You can probably use other development uh, tools on it. And it starts with um, FreeBSD is an open source operating system, who would have thought? And as such, the project is always eager to bring in more contributors and developers. From the outside, it can be hard to figure out what sort of contributions might be accepted. And it is a common refrain that many people don't know where and how to start. Once you have picked your favorite bug, or at least or the least favorite one, uh, or the missing feature, it can still be difficult to figure out how to set up a development environment. FreeBSD as an entire operating system is not very opinionated uh, in how you go about development, and it isn't common to find developers talking about their setups and process. This article will provide some pointers into how some FreeBSD commanders work on the operating system and ports collection. We will discuss the hardware configurations that I use day to day to implement build and test the operating system. Okay, while it is now possible to build FreeBSD on other operating systems, using FreeBSD as your development host is still the easiest and best supported way to do so. The development process for everyone breaks down into a couple of stages, no matter which part of the OS they are working on. The first, preparing the changes, working on the code, ports, or the documentation. The second, building and testing those. And the third is submitting the patches to the project. The first and third stage can happen on any platform where you can get a copy of the FreeBSD source tree and the tools required to work with the project. Building can be done on FreeBSD and other platforms, but testing requires running a FreeBSD system to see how things are working in the real world or the real environment where it's supposed to run later. Preparing the changes. You are free to use your favorite text editor to do FreeBSD development, so less frame wars there. Uh, it is common that developers use text editors such as Vim and Emacs. It's entirely possible to use a modern full-featured IDE such as Visual Studio Code to work on the OS. The actual mechanisms of modifying the OS and adding features is agnostic to which text editor you use. Yeah, whatever makes you uh, productive and what you like to use. The FreeBSD source tree is a large and daunting place where you first, uh, when you first explore it. The layout of the tree is described in the developer's handbook. There are some common tools developers use to help navigate their way around. 
Cscope and Ctax offer the source code search and integrate well with text editors. Cscope, Vim, and Tmux make for a solid development environment when connected to a remote machine. Tmux or Screen enable multiple development windows and provide the option to split up a terminal into multiple pieces and run concurrent sessions. And of course, you can also split up Vim windows even more so you can have really uh, tiny screens if you so desire. That's my <laughs> take on it. But continuing, previously built test suites and stress tests can take a long time to run. When you have to wait on process to complete, it is typical for your mind to wander and you find yourself refreshing Twitter or reading the news. Oh, great, I'm not the only one. Uh, <laughs> a tool like Nifty and TFI, yeah, coupled with a message bus notification like Pushover, integrates really well into a command line based development process. Pushover can deliver notifications to your phone, so you're already alerted when long running tasks or processes have completed. It is a great way to kick something off and leave it in the background without having to worry that you will forget to come back to it as soon as it's done. So building and testing. The FreeBSD build process is documented in build, the build man page. In summary, to build the FreeBSD operating system, you need to go through two main stages. The first, you need to build the world. This is all the software and components you run that make up the operating system. And second, the kernel is built. The kernel handles multitasking and separate software from the fine details of the hardware it has to run on. The build world process compiles all the utilities in the system, like SH, LS, CAT, you name it. But it is first, uh, but it first builds all the tools required to build the operating system itself. The build world stage makes sure that you have an up-to-date uh, build tool chain. If you do not, then it will create the tools it requires to run the build process. Not being up-to-date can lead to weird and difficult to understand errors later when you build the kernel. If you're doing development for a different processor architecture than your host computer, maybe you are cross-compiling from a very fast ARCH64 system and targeting a slow i386 system. Ooh. Then BuildWorld will handle creating the cross-compilation environment for you if you pass the right flags. Oh, cool. BuildWorld will check your system to see if everything is recent enough and it uh, if it is, it will skip building the LLVM compiler. This is a great optimization as building LLVM takes a large portion of the FreeBSD build time. But it is being skipped uh, and can sometimes make you think that builds are magically running faster. The second stage in building the operating system is to compile the kernel via the build kernel option. If you are doing kernel development, this will be a frequent command to run. From the FreeBSD source tree, the following command will perform both the build stages and leave you with a build but not installed operating system. So this is make, build world, and build kernel in one uh, invocation. Then there's a section on using make options to speed uh, things up. Like there's dash d kern fast and make d world fast to build kernel and build world respectively. That's already something. And don't forget about the J, make dash J, and then you provide the number of uh, CPUs and the SysCTL can be put in there to grab that from the current system if you don't know how many CPUs are there. And then run build world and build kernel in that line. And then you have all processes chugging on that <laughs> build in parallel. Then there's a section about uh, meta mode. MetaMode uses BMakes, MetaMode data, and the FileMon file system device to track the changes and substantially reduce the build times by only compiling the objects that have changed between builds. Because why compile something that's already in that same uh, version or in the same state that don't need any work? Yep, then there's uh, make.conf. Uh, is that make? No, source-enf.conf. Uh, that needs uh, with underscore meta underscore mode equals yes line and then loading the KLD uh, the file mon module into 
the uh, running kernel that's dynamically loaded. And then you can run clean world once. If the objects don't have a dot meta files, then meta mode won't do the right thing on an incremental build. Cool. Then up to submitting changes. The once you have written and tested a change, it needs to be submitted to the project. Here, FreeBSD committers can commit to the relevant Git branch and push, but many changes need to go through review, and this process is the same for committers and non-committers. The FreeBSD project uses Fabricator, or Fab for short, for the code review, and changes to uh, can be submitted there, and directly from the development source tree by using the Arcanist command line tool. There's instruction there how to do that. And lastly, what's the workstation hardware there? So the build and test stages of preparing a FreeBSD change are where we get to have fun talking about machines and their performance. There really is no set way to do FreeBSD development and you are free to use the computers you have. So when doing that, the stability of the machine that you type on is very important. When you're getting started, it is easy to decide what you build a FreeBSD machine and use that for everything FreeBSD related. Kernel changes require a lot of reboots and all development leads to crashing bugs. It is much easier to have on a one stable host to write code on and let testing happen on a second machine. This can either be a dedicated box or a virtual machine running on or next to the development box. When working on the FreeBSD operating system, there are three roles for machines. First is development, like writing code and submitting upstream. Then second is building and the third is testing. And Tom describes all of these here further in the article, going really down and optimizing the machines and what you can do in terms of, you know, uh, oh, he has a different comparison about different uh, hardware setups here and build world times that incurs. So we're starting with an i3 NUC. Uh, build world and build kernel time takes 228 minutes. And the other system that he, there's a couple of systems in between, but the other system is a Xeon dev box in the data center that roughly takes nine, uh, 29 minutes. So that's definitely a difference. <laughs> Uh, there's another box in between also. There's a Xeon box in the data center that takes 619 minutes. And why is it taking so long there? Depending on the cores and the number of memory uh, chips in there or the memory in total. So, and the number of jobs you run, right? If you just one, run one job on 48 CPUs, then the other 47 are just idle and do nothing. And the one is doing all the work. So yeah, so the, the compares Benedict uh, one job, twenty four jobs, and forty eight. Oh right, it's yeah. And so like one, what one job is six hundred and nineteen minutes, which is <laughs> too long. Yeah, um, twenty four jobs is forty two minutes, which is a huge improvement. And then doubling it again doesn't double your performance again. It takes you to twenty nine. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Now the the table makes sense to me. Yeah, definitely a good comparison. And uh, use all the CPUs at hand. They are. Uh, reducing your time significantly. In conclusion, FreeBSD is great in that it lets you do development the way you want to, even though when you are starting out, this level of choice can make it difficult to figure out what you should do. The FreeBSD build system offers a lot of power, but it is a complex machine and it takes study to figure out how to use all of its power. If you want to start FreeBSD development, hopefully this article was offered some pointers to uh, help you develop software and uh, suggested a hardware configuration, throw all the cores you can at it, uh, that will help you get the most out of your hacking time. Cool, that's useful and people can definitely use the uh, extra options when they build their local uh, kernels. Yeah, I'm, I'm really fortunate that none of my work has revolved uh, building world a lot, but I think meta mode would probably be really useful if I did. Uh, I think if I just get to play with the kernel. Yeah, I mean, if you're 
developing a, a module that you can load into the kernel and unload, that's much easier than like a user land utility or something that's kernel and user land. Yeah, exactly. Um, like if you're dealing with um, changes to like Netstat where the kernel API has to match the user space API. Yeah. And so like the tools change a lot. I mean, you can just build one binary at a time, so it's not a big impact. But if you were dealing with something which touched like 20 tools and you had to test all of them, you'd waste loads of time. Um, I'm losing access. So the the AMD desktop in the table and the, the Xeon machine, I mean, the AMD desktop I borrowed from a friend and he actually wants back. I have a pair yeah. of them. They're fun, <laughs> but I have to give them back. And so I've been, I've been specking up... Uh, a Ryzen 9 system to replace this, um, to replace the, the Xeon of a data center. Um, the single core performance with um, the Passmark CPU bench on the Xeon is like 12,000 of their points and a, and a 5950 is 42,000. So in the, in the five years between these CPU releases, there's been a lot of CPU improvement in single core. So I'm really excited to see how quickly you can build FreeBSD on a modern like uh, like a modern Ryzen or a modern uh, Epic system. Great oh fun. yeah, and that's why developers need the, the beefy hardware to make the the tools available quicker or the updates faster. Huh? Yeah, yeah, that's that's why we need it. Definitely why yeah. we need it. Not for games. Yeah, definitely to build faster. Mm -hmm. Cool introduction. What, what I <laughs> what, what I've always wanted though is um, someone to make like um, D message D. So the nice bug service where you can post your hardware configuration, at, but for building FreeBSD. So you can just have a leaderboard of who can build FreeBSD oh, fastest yes. and their hardware oh, configuration. That would be great. Then you, it would make shopping a lot more fun because you'd be like, ah, yeah, okay. <laughs> so if I buy this Ampere system, it can compete really well with this Threadripper system. Oh, ah, I see. Compete on that level, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next up we have um, uh, a blog post from Peter Kiasnik. And it is titled, What I Learned from the Russian Students, which actually sounds like the start of a spy novel. Uh, logging is important. When I published my blog post about OpenSUSE a couple of weeks ago, most questions I received in private were about the Russian students. I don't think I read that blog post. Um, in that blog, I quickly described how my interest in information security started about 25 years ago. This blog gives you a bit of historical background and a few more details. Historical background, it was 1995. I was studying at a university, but I was already running one of the servers of the faculty. It was a Linux box, and I also helped to run a FreeBSD server hosting the faculty web server. It was just three years after the Soviet army finally left Hungary. Our university had many students from Russia, while Hungarian students could attend the university for free. Russian students had to pay for their studies. As they were paying a lot, they could do anything. Nobody punished their activities, and they did a lot of things as they felt they can, they can still do anything in the colonies. It was 1995. There was no yet internet yet in the student dormitories. There was no Gmail or any similar provider yet. Not even teachers received email addresses automatically. Even if some people had computers at home, there was no internet access from homes. Students could access service from computer labs at the university. The Russian students had their own computer lab where nobody else was allowed to enter. The and it was 1995, the fifth consecutive year that funding was taken away from higher education, which meant that faculties started to ask money from other faculty, faculties for their services. So the university is charging itself. Uh, Russian students belonged to another faculty, so they could not get a username on our servers. InfoSec is overrated. 
by that time, even I was even as I was running a couple of servers, I was just the same as the vast majority of users today. I mean, I thought that information security is overrated. Ease of use, comfort are a way lot more important. It did not help either that most of the commonly used protocols were not encrypted, like Telnet, FTP, RSH, and others. Even these protocols were often difficult to use from Windows machines. I was learning Linux and FreeBSD, and I was enabling all kinds of services. Using RSH between the two faculty Unix servers was fun. Logging is important. I checked the log files of the servers I managed occasionally, but mostly only to check if the hard drives were showing any signs of failure. While browsing the logs for hard drive errors, I came across some suspicious login messages. Logins from previously not seen unknown IP addresses. I knew that the addresses were from campus, so I asked around. It turned out they belonged to the Russian Students Laboratory. And talking to the user, it turned out he was unaware that his account was being used by someone else. The exact order of events is kind of blurry. It was a quarter of a century ago. I started to check the log messages, not just for hard drive problems, but also for security related events. I could see more and more logins from the Russian students laboratory. It was a kind of cat and mouse game. I was trying to keep, I was trying to keep unauthorized users out of the system. They kept coming back in and started doing nasty things. Along the way, I learned a lot about security. Uh, I learned about a network sniffing. So most of the university had a BNC network, um, which means they were using coax for their ethernet. Um, and was using hubs instead of switches. And hubs instead of switches means that the hub uh, is relaying all traffic onto all ports of the uh, connected rather than it being switched between ports. Uh, combine these with non-encrypted protocols, which means anybody connected can see what's happening. Uh, key loggers, black market. Access for students of our faculty was free. They just had to ask for it. Sometimes minutes after they've received access, there was a login from the Russian lab. Accounts on my servers had a good price. Denial of service, they've tried all kinds of uh, denial of service attacks like fork bombs, too many logins, etc. A stepping stone for further attacks. So I got some not so kind emails asking for explanation. I guess machines are used for attacking people. Uh, turning on a firewall could have been an easy way out, but seeing the IP address of the Russian lab and the system logs was a perfect indicator indicator of a compromise for an account. The account got quickly disabled, either for life, black market, or until a password change. In the second case, I tried to investigate how the, how the password was stolen, and of course gave a quick education on security awareness. Showing my long messages, I tried to ask for some help to stop the Russian students, but as I was just a first year student and the Russian students were paying, nobody cared. After so many years, I don't recall uh, how I got the hint, but I was suggested that I visit the Russian student's computer lab. I was not supposed to enter there, but as they were messing with my servers, I did not care. The door was open, I walked in and looked around. The slash etc password file of my Linux box was printed on the wall. Ouch. <laughs> even, even if encrypted, uh, but it contained the passwords, as also described in my OpenSUSE blog, this was the final push towards information security. FreeBSD already had passwords separate from the user-readable password files, so I knew the concept. I looked around and found that the Linux distribution called Jurix had shadow passwords. It was a brand new thing in the Linux world at the time. I quickly migrated my Linux server to Jurix and did all kinds of hardening along the way. I removed all non-essential services like RSH, even if most users kept using Telnet and other insecure services. I started to use SSH, which was just released. My Russian students realized that they cannot get into my servers easily anymore and even tried to bribe me for access with a counterfeit gaming CD for Windows. 
As you can see, I ended up on the defender side. I did lots of security hardening and built systems that ran securely, even years after I abandoned them. Logging still takes an important role in my life. I work with syslog at NG. Russian students were a major pain in the ass at the time, but I learned a lot about security while I was keeping them out of the servers I managed. <laughs> yeah, it's a great story, yeah. <laughs> I would love to have been in the Russian lab when they were messing around his machine. <laughs> I mean, we both. It'd have been great to hear those stories. Yeah. I mean, we're both at the university, and we we see that students are one at one point they are encouraged to experiment and try out these things, but at others we need to also make sure that the university networks and others are secured. And so it's always a you know catching up game and a trade off between security and uh, not blocking too many things. I, I think we had a Solaris machine at uni when I started. and oh, I'd been on Unix machines for a long time when I got there, but the first thing I did was try and launch a fork bomb on it. <laughs> it's like, yep, mess around. Yeah. Students being students. I did it. <laughs> Lab is over for today. <laughs> cool. Uh, next up in our news roundup, we have how BSD authentication works. That's documented over at lambda.cx blog, and they um, con well they describe it on the OpenBSD way of doing things. And in the history section, they say that the way OpenBSD authenticates uh, users is quite different from other Unix-like operating systems. Most other systems like AIX, Solaris, Linux, the other BSDs, and macOS use a framework called the plugin. Pluggable Authentication Module, or PAM. The two main implementations are Linux PAM and Open PAM. PAM modules are created as dynamically loaded shared objects, which communicate using a combination of common and implementation-specific interfaces, Linux PAM and Open PAM. It's configured using the pam.dk directory and pam.conf files. Uh, while it can be flexible, it's highly complex and very easy to misconfigure, leaving you open to strange and hard to track down authentication blocks, or never to be able to log in again at all. On top of that, the fact that it's a shared library means that any vulnerability in a poorly vetted authentication module gives attackers direct access to the internals of your application. Author Michael W. Lucas said it best when he described PAM as unstandardized black magic. <laughs> yeah. OpenBSD, on the other hand, uses a mechanism called BSD authentication. It was originally developed for a non-defunct proprietary or now defunct operating system proprietary one called BSD slash OS by the Berkeley Software Design Incorporated, who later donated the system. It was then adopted by OpenBSD in release 2.9. BSD auth is comparatively or comparatively much simpler than PAM. Modules or authentication styles, they say, are instead standalone applications or scripts that communicate over IPC. The module has no ability to interfere with the parent and can very easily revoke permissions using the pledge or unveil calls. The BSD authentication system of configured through or is configured through login.conf. And further down the article, each individual um, module or function call is explained what kind of parameters they take and what the parameters are doing and at the uh, very bottom it's all tied together with a big uh, call graph to see how these tie together and what kind of function calls which and it doesn't seem to be too messy because it's there's even from the call graph there is a structure visible and how these systems interconnect and make sure that everyone can log in securely and fairly easily for the system 
Check out the whole article if you are interested in any of the authentication details. And it's uh, well documented, could definitely developer documentation because it also goes down into the source code. And yeah, you can find all the things you are looking for in there. Okay, next up we have a, a blog post from, from NetGate. And the 13th of October, which is seven days ago uh, as we record, uh, was PFSense Software's 15th birthday. And they write, today marks 15 years since the release of PFSense Software 1.0. 15 years is an amazing milestone when you stop to consider the impact and achievements of PFSense Software, uh, number one open source secure networking solution in the world. I don't know. I think, oh, okay. Um, over 50 software releases, uh, over 26,000 open source code commits, uh, over 3 million installs since the 17th of October. Uh, since October 2017, uh, across every vertical and continent, yes, including Antarctica, uh, over 338,000 NetGate forum members, and numerous accolades for feature set, reliability, and ease of use. Uh, NetGate is proud to have been a major sponsor of the PFSense project starting in 2008, and the steward and primary developer of the project since 2012. We are proud of our continued testing, packaging, distribution, documentation, and more, all of which require a deep commitment to the cause of progressing open source software. At the same time, we are grateful to the entire PFSense community, including uh, contributions from many talented and devoted software developers over the years. Uh, and there's a quote here from Scott Long, the director of PFSense Software Development. No other community-developed project has propelled both the components and the ethos of open source and combined them into a product as successful as PFSense software. NetGate's unwavering investment in open source continues, uh, ensures data security will continue to be the right of all internet citizens. Uh, yeah, and I, I want to wish them happy birthday. Uh, NetGate um, and as well as PFSense have contributed tons of stuff back to FreeBSD. And they've also funded a lot of really important development projects that just wouldn't have happened without um, without someone being able to put up the money for a long running project. And so it's great to hear that they're having their 15th birthday and I, I hope they get another 15 years. Yeah, congratulations. And they say that they plan to write more exciting chapters in the coming years. So we'll follow that along and be happy to report what's happening there. Uh, there's also another project, OpenSense, uh, that has released a business edition 21.10 uh, right now and the release notes are that OpenSense Business Edition successfully transitions or transitions, yeah, transitions to its 21.10 release with a new installer, including ZFS support, improved central management and Intel network driver updates, amongst others. Uh, they provide a download link, of course, and the full set of patches is quite long, but some of these are revolving around the system to allow, for example, automatic user creation on LDAP-based login. Uh, circular logs are now disabled by default or they reload FreeBSD services when loading all services from the console, which is useful. And they prevent also the use of client certificates in the web GUI. So that's a convenience function there. They have changes to the interface. Uh, they add, for example, and use the unified function as interface assigned to prevent deleting assigned interface. Also, they added the netstat tree search and improved the page layout and correct intent in the DH client configuration. So small things like that are uh, usually good to, to have, but not user visible too much. Then Firewall uh, has uh, quick links to states counter from the firewall rule inspections. They have aliases, maximum entries, progress bars, clarify match and set priorities in the rules, delete 
uh, delete related rules when an interface group is removed. Yeah, remove all the things that are uh, associated with it. And also um, use permanent promiscuous mode for PF log zero so you don't have to switch back and forth the whole time. DHCP changes include always deprecate the prefixes and automatic router advertisements and fix the table headers supporting or uh, sorting in lease pages. Firmware changes, IPsec changes, OpenVPN changes, unbound changes, and of course, uh, fresh software updates in the ports collection. They list also known issues and limitations to uh, know. Uh, Nextcloud backup feature moved from the core to plugins. Please reinstall if you need that. And IPsec identities are now set using their explicit type. Set the strongman document or see the strongman documentation for the old authentication uh, or automatic defaults. Unbound custom options setting has been discontinued. Local override directory use a local etc unbound.opensense.d exists that you can use. OpenVPN network import validation has changed. Check all the clients and servers for GUI errors after upgrade by saving their configuration and removing the stray white spaces on errors. And Open Central, lastly, that the plugin is no longer required on managed nodes after the upgrade. Cool, another uh, interesting update for people running OpenSense. They will probably be happy to update. Yeah, there's like 150 changes listed there. So uh, definitely worth looking at if you run OpenSense. Mm -hmm. Okay, last up in the, the news today, we have uh, an article getting started with pot. Which pot? Uh, pot is <laughs> um, a large pot. Oh. Uh, pot is a, a FreeBSD jail um, orchestration framework. Uh, and this guide uh, covers uh, getting started with and then links through to a full guide of how to use pot. Uh, for this guide, they assume you have FreeBSD 12 plus machine with a ZFS pool available. Uh, to install pot on FreeBSD, you run package install pot. Um, you then need to enable resource accounting. Um, and if you're using VNets, uh, if you if you have performance issues, uh, which are known with the VTNet driver, you might want to disable LRO, and then you're ready to use POT. Um, it then talks about the POT configuration framework. So you need to populate some variables so POT can find where things are. So there's a, a ZFS root, um, uh, FS root, so where in your file system pot is, uh, an external uh, interface, so the pot can be used to configure a NAT, I'm, I'm guessing, um, the network you want to give it, and the gateway it needs to have. Um, and then you can use pot check config to validate your configuration and to do the network side of things. And then you can use pot init dash v, uh, okay, uh, use pf, uh, pot init dash v. Um, which will give you the verbose output of turning on pot. And from there, uh, creating an instance, um, a jail instance with pot is the same as uh, running pot create. Um, uh, and with the configuration, and so this is the, the base, uh, FreeBSD base release you're going to use, um, and it will, will build and create uh, releases for you. And, and that's all it is. It seems like a very simple way to orchestrate and play with jails. Oh, yeah. That's quite a start, and uh, other subchapters are there to uh, look at as well. So that's great. Thank you for, I think that's Luca Pizzamiglio who wrote this and developed Pod or helped develop it. And so people can start using it right now. Ah, yes, all good things uh, evolve in our feedback and questions sections. But before we go into our 
uh, feedback sections that's very popular with uh, readers, listeners, and uh, people uh, listening to the show, we have uh, our sponsor to mention. That's Tarsnap. Tarsnap is the online backup for truly paranoid people. That means your files are secured by Tarsnap, backing those up. But before they are backed up, they are encrypted. And even before that, they're made smaller by compressing them and finding the unique blocks that are uh, there and can be uh, cached and then uh, segmented into different portions that provide uh, smaller data in, in return. And after that is done, your personal key is used to encrypt your files and then store them in the Tarsnap server, which reside on AWS. And then they sit there, no one can look at them because they're encrypted. And if one day you need your files back because that disaster has happened, then, or just <laughs> want your backups to, to open again from like last week or so, you can download them again and do the reverse with your personal key. If your personal key is lost, then even the Tarsnap folks can't help you. They cannot unencrypt those files anymore. And so keep your personal key secure somewhere else. Um, but as soon as you have your key or as long as you have that, you can still get your files back. And with the nice pricing model that Tarsnap has, uh, you can simulate with uh, a system call or a call to Tarsnap how much it would cost for a specific amount of data to be backed up. And you will find that it's very cheap, even for big amounts of data. Because Tarsnap is pay as you go. You charge your account up for maybe like $5 in the beginning, then use it up over the, over the weeks and months and years even. Depends on the size of your disks or the data you back up. And so they will let you know when your account is running low so you can recharge before that happens. And there's plenty of cool documentation available on the Tarsnap website about how to use it. There's even a book available by Michael W. Lucas, Tarsnap Mastery, if you want to read it first. And uh, the whole design is also uh, this, uh, described on Tarsnap's website. So plenty of good reasons to look at Tarsnap closer for your backup solution and needs. And since it's based on tar, the tar command, and adds a couple of extra commands, you will be very quickly familiar with it if you have used tar before. Okay, here are our feedback and questions for this week. Oh, here's one. Ah, I see where this is going. Uh, Benjamin, let me, let me ask it. Yeah, you you go ahead. <laughs> so, so it's a question from Benjamin. Um, Benedict, when is your Z Pool Boy story coming out? Or do you have a pre-publication draft, perhaps? Ah, yes. Uh, I see that people got excited about what I uh, described the other day when we did the interview with Michael W. Lucas, and then I read an excerpt <laughs> there. So what I did, I used all the ZFS commands in the man page or the subcommands even, and created a little story out of it. And so the current issue for that is that the story has been written and has been submitted to the uh, FreeBSD journal folks who will now uh, assemble it into a nicely looking article. And we're still deciding whether, uh, so I marked up all the, uh, the keywords there so that people can recognize them, but that makes it a bit difficult to read the whole thing. Uh, so we try to, uh, you know, hide it a little bit in there, but people can still recognize them. And so there's plenty of uh, ZFS parlance in there and file systems as well. Um, so let's see, maybe I can write, uh, read you a short part without giving away <laughs> the, too the, much the of sense, the fun Those of sensitive story. dispositions should, uh, uh, should stop listening now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, 
yeah, here's a bit that I can read. Um, so as you can see, it's uh, or I can probably guess from the title, it's about a, a poor boy who's doing his work. Um, and so one section reads, don't stare, he told himself, just fulfill your ZFS quota and Zpool detached like always. He wiped the microsystems off his brow and the sun had, that the sun had formed on his forehead. Clearly it must have gotten warmer since he had gotten here. The water was glittering in the sun, resilvering the pool in the light. He went down to Zpool clear some leaves from the filter. Uh, even some flies were stuck in there that reminded him of files for some reason. After a while, he went back and Zpool reopened the pool. He watched the water flow back into the basin, which was more to him like a big tank. Uh, there may be many pools out there, but this one was his place of work and only his. And so, yeah, let's leave it at that because that would give away uh, too much of the story. It's uh, in total uh, in this Word document that I have here, it's six pages long. Uh, and yeah, uh, wait for it. It's definitely good. I hope you, you like it. It's coming out in the December issue. Uh, we're finishing that uh, by the end of the year. And so definitely look out for that when it's a, the story uh, or the whole issue is about storage. And so I thought this would be a nice addition to it. Cool. So uh, I, I see this is uh, becoming a whole thing of its own, and I'm probably have have to read this at conferences at one point, and then yeah, <laughs> things go really bad because then people want to follow up. We, we need talk uh, about it, and then I'm really screwed. <laughs> ben uh, Benedict, yeah, we need to uh, uh, we need to get a reading <laughs> of you doing it next to a log fire with a uh, a cup of hot chocolate. Yeah, yeah, dramatic reading. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you yes. provide the fire and I, the hot chocolate, and I'm all for it. The reading. <laughs> <laughs> cool. What's next? Uh, here's Nelson with. Uh, uh, oh, here's a correction about episode 419. And that goes Episode 419 reports that Debian dropped support for the deck alpha at Debian 5. That is no longer true. I have Debian 11 VMs running on QMU for alpha, ARM 64. Uh, HPPA, M64K, Spark64, and S390X, and Debian 10 for PowerPC, Little Endian, uh, CentOS 7 for PowerPC, Big Endian, CentOS 8 for PowerPC with Little Endian, and for Debian 11 Alpha slash proc slash CPU reports that, ah, here's the CPU Alpha model. Oh, indeed, yeah. Tsunami system variation, Clipper and LSCPU says, architecture, Alpha CPU, op mode, 64-bit byte order, Little Endian, and so on. One CPU, zero threads per core, one core per socket. Yeah, they didn't have those concepts back then. Uh, so the last message line reads, I also have VMs for FreeBSD on ARM64 and RISC V64 and many more. So no, I'm I, not sure where I, this I think, um, was I think it came from, from uh, an article we read um, by someone running an OS on a DAC alpha. I think that was the thing. So... Um, it, it, we we didn't. I, I don't think we asserted this. Oh, okay. um, I did ask some Debian people what on earth support means in Debian, and I don't think. I think it's a bit like FreeBSD, where you can, you can have a running system, right? And it's running code which is in tree and is alive, but it's not supported. And so, like Risk Five here is a perfect example because Risk Five is um, like tier yeah. three, tier two support. So it's in tree, but it's it's you know. Uh, there's no actual support for the release. And the, I think that's the same for Debian. I mean, I think K3BSD sits there in Debian as well. Like, it's an architecture, but it's not really supported and pushed by the release. Uh, but it's great that you're running Reason. I mean, it's always good to see efforts to keep this stuff alive. Uh, I, I look forward to a, re a blog post about it. Yeah, I mean, it's had its high time. Yeah, 
And so that's good to have to to know that it's still around somehow. But the support, as uh, Tom said, is uh, not as as it was once. Uh, but yeah, people are still able to do, to run it, and if they have a machine for that, definitely do that if there's a need. Uh, then we have Peter with a, a state machines uh, comment or uh, feedback, and that goes. Sorry to bother you with the following topic. That's uh, okay. But I do not know where to start else. I listen to your shows often and know you know a lot about FreeBSD. So I thought you could give me some hints. I'm interested in state machines and want to understand if uh, UML slash Harrell state machines are used anywhere in the FreeBSD kernel. Maybe you um, know that or know someone who I knows. did not look. I, I definitely just assumed. Uh, I have done some FreeBSD development and I've never come across anything that looks like a UML diagram um, or like... Um, so like UML and I think Harrell diagrams are used to describe a state machine and then you implement from the design. Um, you can also use them to document state machines. Um, yeah. There are obviously state machines everywhere throughout the operating system. TCP is a great example of one of these, um, but I don't think they're they're documented in this formal way. I think they exist more informally. Um, you, but if you want to try and find these, grep through the source tree for some keywords that you'd find from UML software, and you'd see if you get any results because it's a great way to look. Um, there's a lot of stuff in FreeBSD that is not necessarily hooked up to the build, and so you wouldn't see it commonly. An example of this is... Um, there were a bunch of papers from the 80s and early 90s, which are in the FreeBSD tree about um, parts of um, like 3BSD and, and 4BSD, like this sort of generation. Um, and they're not part of the build. They just exist. Um, and so you can find them this way. Yeah, but they're there they're, and they're really interesting. They're out there. Uh, so there's a ton of stuff there. The whole um, source tools, tools directory has like loads of fascinating development tools that, are undocumented and no one apart from the authors knows they're there. Um, one of them includes uh, for certain Atheros chipsets, you can um, dump raw radio data so you can get like FFT plots of the power of your radio. Uh, if it, it, it requires like uh, mm -hmm. some really hacked together cool. QT5 stuff and you have to ask Adrian Chad how on earth they make it work, but it's in tools tools. It's called like eighth spec scan. It's just there, it exists. So yeah, there's loads of stuff in the FreeBSD tree and you, you, sometimes you just have to look. <laughs> okay. Yeah, if someone else knows uh, about these or has used them in the, in the source tree or in the kernel, uh, let us know and we'll be happy to follow up on this one. But so far, I don't know any anything uh, that's definitely using that. Cool. Uh, that's our feedback that we have for you today. Uh, any feedback that you have for us should be directed to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Anything, show ideas, topics, stories that you found or want to relate to other people or even questions that you have like the ones we just read. Or if you have questions for us and we collect enough of them, then we do a special episode where we do an interview you with us as the audience. And so um, give us uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv as the address, but uh, your subject should be, uh, let's go um, BSD Now interviews maybe and then write your questions there. And again, as we collect these and we have enough to fill a whole episode, then we'll be happy to do one that interviews all four people involved in BSD Now. Cool, that wraps up the episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Tom, for helping out again. Thanks always, Benedict. And till next week. Bye.